Therefore, my beloved, flee from idolatry. I speak as to sensible people. Judge for yourselves what I say. The cup of blessing that we bless, is it not a participation in the blood of Christ? The bread that we break, is it not a participation in the body of Christ? Because there is one bread, we who are many are one body, for we all partake of the one bread. Consider the people of Israel. Are not those who eat the sacrifices participants in the altar? What do I imply then? That food offered to idols is anything? Or that an idol is anything? No. I imply that what pagans sacrifice, they offer to demons and not to God. I do not want you to be participants with demons. You cannot drink the cup of the Lord and the cup of demons. You cannot partake of the table of the Lord and the table of demons. Shall we provoke the Lord to jealousy? Are we stronger than he? This is the word of the Lord. Let's you pray with me. Heavenly Father, we thank you this morning for your word. And Father, we are so grateful that you are a father that is compassionate towards us in our weakness. We thank you that you are a God that has come low to meet us. And that even right now this morning that you help us, you gently place your hand underneath our chin and lift up our weary heads and lift our gaze that we may behold Christ. And so Lord, we just come to you this morning confessing that's what we need you to do today. Would you lift up our eyes that we might see Jesus? Would you bestow upon us the joy it is to fellowship with you. And so would you be our teacher today, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Let's be exclusive. That's uh, essentially what I said to my wife 12 years ago on this very day. Today is our uh, wedding anniversary. And 12 years ago today, I basically stood up in front of family and friends and said to my wife, let's be exclusive. Now, of course, I used, you know, a lot more romantic language. It was, you know, it wasn't as cut and dry as that. But that's essentially what I was saying to my wife and that she was saying back to me. Let's be exclusive. Let's love and commit ourselves to only each other for the rest of our lives. Right? That's essentially what marriage is. It means to be exclusive. But if you were to, uh, the next time you went to Chick-fil-A, the manager came up to you and said, Let's be exclusive. You'd probably be a little bit offended, right? You might look at him and say, excuse me? And he, he might say to you, well, listen, you come here all the time. You clearly love this restaurant. We love you. So let's be exclusive. You might say something like, well, I do love Chick-fil-A a lot, but I also like other restaurants. So no, we cannot be exclusive. And you probably leave. You probably find a new, uh, new Chick-fil-A. But there are some relationships where exclusivity makes perfect sense. And then there are others where the expectation of exclusivity would just offend us. And the invitation to follow Jesus as your Lord, as your Savior, as your King, is an invitation to follow Him exclusively. Some of us, if we're honest this morning, treat Jesus more like a Chick-fil-A than we do a spouse. We might say things to Jesus like, Jesus, I like you a lot, 
But I also like keeping my options open. We want to sometimes be able to sit at Jesus' table, but also maybe sometimes sit at another table. And the table was a really big idea in the first century. Who you shared a meal with really, really mattered. It communicated a lot. It was significant. When you shared a meal with someone, it communicated partnership. It communicated a belonging, a community, some type of bond together. To break bread and to partake of the cup together was this idea that we share a destiny. For better or for worse, I'm with you and you're with me. It was, maybe a church word we often use, fellowship. That's what that idea means. And if you're a Christian here this morning, you sit at the table of Jesus. You've been welcomed there. You have a seat there. And because of that, you belong to Jesus. He has linked your destiny with his to say, I'm with you and you're with me. And as we come to the book of 1 Corinthians, the Corinthian Christians were insisting that it was okay for them to sit at another table. They were saying, Jesus, we like sitting at your table, but it's really not that big of a deal if sometimes we go and sit at another table. And the context of this in chapter 10 is this idea of going to different temples and eating meals in these temples dedicated to idols. The city of Corinth was filled with all kinds of different temples dedicated to different Greek and Roman gods. And part of society was to just simply go to these temples. It was kind of like an ancient restaurant. You'd go there, you'd share a meal together, you'd rejoice, you'd have a party, you'd have fun, you'd, you'd break bread with people, you'd celebrate. That was just a part of normal life. Except then a lot of people became Christians and they wrestled with, well, we can still go to those temples, right? We can still eat food there because we know that we're Christians now. We, 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 we belong to the one true God. All these other idols are just fake. They're not real gods. So going to be a part of these meals doesn't really mean anything because it's not real anyways. They can eat food sacrificed to idols. They essentially said it's fine. It's just a meal. And the writer here, the Apostle Paul, is writing to them to say, no, it's not. It's not just a meal. He says it's idolatry. It's actually engaging in the worship of idols. And when you worship idols, you share table fellowship with demons, which strikes our ears as like, a sharp right turn. Like, where did that come from? Demons? That's what he's saying this morning. And our idolatry is no different. And the word of God is calling us this morning to run from idols and sit only at Jesus' table. It's to say this, that we as Christians exclusively belong to Christ. So, let us exclusively sit at Jesus' table and only his table. In verse 14, he continues where he's been going uh, since the beginning of chapter 10 to essentially say, therefore, flee from idolatry. You are walking towards something quite dangerous. Run away from it. And in verse 14, moving on, we see him begin here to essentially say this. We exclusively belong to Jesus, so fellowship with him. We have to first talk about this idea, how can we even belong at Jesus' table? Because that's, that's somewhat of a, a unique concept that we could sit at the table of God and be welcomed there. How could that possibly be so? 
In fact, it's a question that's been around for a long time. When Jesus came to earth, he shared a literal table with known sinners. It's what he would do. He would sit down at table and he would welcome sinners and tax collectors and it bothered a lot of people. In fact, the religious leaders mocked Jesus for this. They called him a friend of sinners, which was not a compliment. They say he's a glutton and a drunkard because he's just eating all the time and drinking all the time with sinners. They would essentially be asking him the question, how can you claim to be a religious teacher of God's law and yet welcome to your table wicked sinners? And that's actually a pretty good question. How can God do that? Well, in Luke chapter 5, Jesus answers those questions. He says this, Those who are well have no need of a physician, but those who are sick. I have not come to call the righteous, but sinners to repentance. He's saying that repentance is the doorway to my table. Not righteousness, not you trying your best, or you being really impressive, or you hanging out with the right people, or you being a part of the right group. I've called to come sinners to repentance because repentance is the doorway to my table. Which means it's open to anyone, no matter how wicked they may be. Which is good news for us. Jesus welcomes us through repentance to his table. And the reason why repentance works is because there was a substitute that was sacrificed in our place, which is exactly where Paul is going here in this concept of sitting at Jesus' table. Look at where he goes. Starting in verse 16, he says, The cup of blessing that we bless, is it not a participation in the blood of Christ? The bread that we break, is it not a participation in the body of Christ? The very reason why repentance is effective is for, for, for those that are repenting towards Christ is because this, in repentance, we are calling upon the body and blood of Jesus. That Jesus went to the cross in a real body, and bore the weight of our sins on the cross and says, anybody who believes in me as your substitute, your sins have been placed on me. My body bore the weight of your sins on the cross, on my shoulders, and my blood was poured out as atonement for your sins. Instead of your blood, it was my blood. And in repentance, when we turn away from our sins and trust in Christ, here's what we're doing. We are calling upon the body and blood of Jesus as our grounds for forgiveness. We're not saying, I'm repenting and Lord, see how sorry I am for all of my sins and therefore forgive me. We're not saying, God, my sins are really not that big of a deal, so therefore forgive me. We are saying my sins are a huge deal, but I'm calling upon the fact that Jesus' body bore the weight of my sins and his blood was poured out instead of mine for my sins. Because of those realities, Lord, would you cleanse me? Would you forgive me? Would you welcome me to your table? And in calling upon those things, we get to be welcomed to the table of God by repenting of our sins and putting our faith in his body and in his blood. In that moment, when you do that, God qualifies you to sit at his table. Which is why God's table is filled with all kinds of people that look like they shouldn't belong there. Here's what Colossians chapter 1 says about this reality. Colossians 1 says, Giving thanks to the Father who has qualified you. Listen to what he's qualified you to get. To share in the inheritance of the saints in light. Did that go over your head? 
Phil's like, what is that? It sounds great. It's the inheritance of God's kingdom. All that is his, he says, I'm qualifying you to share in it. He has delivered us from the domain of darkness and transferred us to the kingdom of his beloved son, in whom we have redemption, the forgiveness of sins. No one's welcome at God's table on their own, on their own merit. But through the doorway of repentance, he says, I will forgive you. I will redeem you. I will qualify you to have a seat at this table. I will qualify you to share in the greatest inheritance anyone's ever known. You belong here now. This table is your table. We now have table fellowship with Jesus. And as we're reading 1 Corinthians 10, Paul is going to use the meal that we eat at this table to build his case against idolatry. He's literally saying that as we sit at this table and we partake of the communion meal, we partake of the bread and the wine, that as we do that, we are participating with Jesus. We are participating in his blood and in his body. So the logic is this. The cross of Christ secures our union with God. It's the only way we can have relationship with God. We can be restored to him. The cross secures our union with him. But the meal that we eat, in that we experience our union with God. The cross makes it a reality. The meal we eat at the table allows us to experience the reality together. Here's what he's saying, and this is really important to grasp if we're going to grasp the logic of Paul's argument. It's this. There's something spiritual happening when we partake of communion together. There is something spiritual happening more than just eating when we take communion at the table of Jesus. Jesus is present with us in some way during communion. He's saying literally right here, as we take it, we participate in his blood. We participate in his body. Something's happening there. Something spiritual is happening. He's present with us in some way. The question really is how? And this this has actually been like a very large theological debate for centuries upon centuries. In what way is Jesus present with us as we partake of communion? We're not going to jump into the depth of all of these waters today, but let me just kind of give us a quick flyover. We would reject as Christians, as if we would take these terms, as Protestants, we would reject the traditional Roman Catholic interpretation of this, which is the idea of transubstantiation. Trans meaning a different or a change of substance. So in, in communion, what the Roman Catholic Church would believe is that as the priest holds up the elements of the bread and the wine, that the Lord Jesus literally comes and changes the elements so that when we eat of it, we eat the literal body of Christ and the literal blood of Jesus. And wrapped up in that is this idea that as it's presented to the people, it is, a, it is an ongoing sacrifice of Jesus so that if you partake of it, you actually secure more forgiveness of your sins. We would reject that idea. We would reject that idea, particularly because it calls into question the sufficiency of what Jesus did on the cross. If that's actually true, it wasn't finished on the cross. There was still a little bit more. There are some, though, that will also take it maybe towards the other side of 
Actually, nothing spiritual is really happening at all. This is just kind of a symbolic act. We're just eating. We're just kind of memorializing Jesus. We're just remembering him in our minds, and we're just partaking of something that really has no, it doesn't do anything for us. Jesus isn't really present with us in any unique way. We're just kind of remembering him in our hearts and in our minds. But in communion, we aren't just doing something. We're being given something. I think that's what Paul is, is trying to say here. As we partake of communion, it's not just us acting. God's actually giving something to us. He, he's bringing us into something as we partake of communion. And so there's a, there's a couple of views that kind of fit in, in, in the middle of this. And I, I, think, I think one view is particularly helpful to describe this idea that Christ might not be physically present with us because he is seated at the right hand of God. That, that is where... Christ's literal, glorified human body is, is seated at the right hand of God. But in communion, he is spiritually present with us in a unique and even mysterious way. That as we partake of communion, here's, what, here's the, the idea that John Calvin would have, is that as we partake of communion together, that as we take it in faith, in faith that the Lord Jesus died on our behalf, bled on our behalf, and as we trust in him, we're rescued from our sins. As we take communion in faith, it is as if the Holy Spirit transports us to where Christ is right now in the heavenlies and allows us to commune with him. And that as we partake it, we actually receive something of him. He would use this idea of spiritual feasting. That when we take communion together as the body of Christ in faith, that Jesus actually gives something to us, namely himself. The idea being here at the table, we receive Christ. We spiritually feed on Christ. We get Jesus. I think there's more going on in the Lord's Supper than we tend to be aware of. In fact, John Calvin would say, I'd rather... It, it, I understand this is complicated and the way in which Christ is present with us is kind of a mystery to us. But he says this, I'd rather experience it than understand it. We might not understand all the nuances of it, but when we, I think when we read this passage in particular, we see something deeply unique and spiritual and even mysterious is happening as followers of Jesus, we partake of the meal at the table. We participate somehow with Jesus. We get him. We get to feast upon him. So, if that's true, then we, we must partake of Christ. We must come to the table, to the communion table, for refreshment and nourishment. We need it. For centuries, the Christian church has always put a high emphasis on when we gather, partaking of the meal together, not just because it's some symbol or it's just some religious act, but because there's something we're receiving in it. We're receiving spiritual nourishment, encouragement, a reminder of the gospel for our souls and for our hearts that we actually need this thing. And so there is a very practical outworking for this of, hey, if you're a Christian, you're at the table, partake of the meal. Don't just sit at the table. Partake of communion together. Don't neglect that. Come to the table. Come to Christ and look to him for your acceptance. Look to him for your strength and for your sustenance. 
There's an old story I heard about a, a Scottish pastor who was uh, giving, giving out the, the, the elements, the bread and the wine of, of, of communion one Sunday, and he noticed that this one woman was not partaking. A woman he had known and, and knew was a follower of Jesus, but she was not partaking, and so he approached her and he said, ma'am, why are you not partaking of communion? And she said, I am a great sinner. And he said to her, ma'am, this meal is for sinners. It is, we, we need this. We need to come and feast upon Christ and celebrate our union with him and partake of it together and receive Jesus again and again and again. That's what Paul's saying here. He's saying what we do at the table of the Lord Jesus is not just some symbolic physical act. There's something going on. Even if we don't fully understand it, we experience it. And he's saying that that table fellowship we have with Jesus is not just one-on-one. -on -one. We also have fellowship with the other people sitting at the table. Look at the language that he uses here, like verses 16 and 17. The cup that we bless, the bread that we break, because there's one bread, we who are many are one body, for we all partake of the one bread. This isn't a sweetheart table. It's a farm table. You've ever seen a sweetheart table before? Probably at a wedding. It's just the, the bride and the groom. They sit at a sweetheart table. The message they're sending to you, by the way, is please don't come talk to us. This is private. Your relationship with Jesus, when you partake of the meal with him, you're not sitting at a sweetheart table. You're sitting at a farm table. It's big. It's wide. It's got many, many seats. You're rubbing shoulders with people maybe you don't have much in common with. You're engaging in conversation with people that may, may be kind of weird to you. It's a table where there's others. There's a family sitting there. We partake of this together. Even in our communion together, it's not just me and Jesus. It's us and Jesus. It's us and each other. That's why we can't come to the table with disunity in our hearts to our brother and sister. Something of the gospel, there is something of the gospel that we participate in through church unity that we don't get in just my solo pursuit of Jesus. We say this phrase often, there's no such thing as Lone Ranger Christianity. There's no such thing as, this is just me and Jesus and my journey. Friends, if you're committed to Jesus, you need to be committed to his people. Jesus doesn't just say, I call to myself a bunch of individuals and I have individual relationship with them. He says, I call to myself a family. You can't be committed to Jesus and not committed to his people. It's why we so highly emphasize belonging and something like church membership. It is the outworking of our unity with Christ that we aren't sitting at a sweetheart table. We're sitting at a farm table. Here's the idea. This union we have with Christ makes all other unions idolatry. And this table fleshes out that union. Therefore, this table makes all other tables idolatry. This meal we eat affirms the union we have. Therefore, all other meals are idolatry. So he begins with talking about communion to say this, you exclusively belong to Jesus, so fellowship with him. And then he goes on to say this, you exclusively belong to Jesus, so not only fellowship with him, but don't fellowship with demons. 
which again, feels like an abrupt change of subject. And it would have felt like that for the Corinthians too. But here's what Paul is going to say. He's going to say, idols are not real, but demons are. The Corinthians are saying, we know there's only one God. There's only one true God and we follow him. We sit at his table. We have union with him. We partake of his meal. We have a bond with him. We know these gods and idols aren't real. So therefore, eating meals in their temples doesn't matter. It's fake. And Paul, on one hand, says, you're correct. We know that those idols aren't real. They don't have real existence. And he's saying this. Anytime throughout the centuries anyone's ever worshipped Zeus or Artemis or any of the ancient gods that have temples dedicated in all these cities, they're not actually worshipping any god at all. Those gods have never actually existed. But they are worshipping something that is real. He says they're worshipping demons. We don't maybe tend to think about demons a lot in your everyday life, but demons are very real. When we read the scriptures, we get the picture that demons were created as angels. And Satan rebelled against God's authority, essentially saying, I can do it way better than you. I hate your authority. Your authority is not good. I don't want it. And he rebelled against God. And that there was a bunch of angels that went with him. And so demons are fallen angels. Jesus even talks about this, that he saw Satan falling like lightning from heaven. Demons are very real. In fact, the book of Ephesians tells us that our battle in life is actually not against other human beings. It's actually against these demonic spirits. Ephesians chapter 6, verse 12 says this, for we do not wrestle against flesh and blood but against the rulers, against the authorities, against the cosmic powers over this present darkness, against the spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly places. Now, we do wrestle against flesh and blood, don't we? That happens a lot. But here's what he's saying. He's saying that even when that happens, there's spiritual realities at play that you might not even be aware of. Because the real battle that humanity is engaged in with is with Demons who are opposed to the authority of the Lord Jesus and are doing everything to take that piece of creation that was created in his image and separate them from him. Demons are very real. Demons are also quite powerful. But at the same time, they're limited. That's an important distinction. Demons are powerful, but they're limited. They are not all-knowing. They are not present everywhere all at once, all the time. They are not all powerful. They are powerful, but they're not all powerful. They can do some things to those that are not Christians. They can do some things to those that are Christians. They are deceivers and liars and tormentors. What we know that they cannot do, according to the scriptures, particularly go read Romans chapter 8, they cannot separate Christians from the love of Christ. They cannot sever your union with Christ. They cannot pick you up and move you away from the table. You belong there by the blood of Jesus and it's been sealed by his Holy Spirit. But we'd be foolish to think that just because I'm a Christian, they can't do anything to me. They can't have any kind of influence in my life. That's not true. It wasn't even true for Jesus. 
Satan himself came to Jesus to tempt him, to lie to him, to try and deceive him. Even the apostle Paul writes about the fact that he had a messenger of Satan who was sent to torment him. We would be foolish to say, just because I'm a Christian, that means Satan's no longer even really interested in me. In fact, I think we can say it's the opposite. Because you're at the table of Christ, he hates you even more. He wants to destroy you even more. So they are powerful, but we must remember they're limited. But their goal is this, very simply, take you away from Jesus. Turn you away from Jesus by whatever means necessary, whether that be catastrophic failure or that be really distracted. Whatever means will work. That's their goal, is to distract Christians away from Jesus. And their goal with unbelievers is to blind their eyes from seeing the glory of Jesus Christ in the gospel. The Corinthians, hearing Paul say this, probably thought, don't be dramatic. It's just a meal, Paul. He's saying, no, no. There's so much more going on here that you're not even aware of. In these meals, the God was thought to be present with the people partaking of the meal, blessing the meal, dwelling with them, and you join in union with those gods when you partake of this meal. But the gods aren't real. Correct. When you're taking this meal, the demons are really present with you, blessing you, communing with you, and you join yourself with them when you worship them. However innocent their intentions were, the result was that they were giving permission and assent and partnership with demonic defiance against Jesus. Way more is happening in those meals than they realized. But essentially, here's what Paul's doing. He's forbidding any kind of relationship with demons. And demons are not as remote as we think. This was not just a first century problem. They're not as remote as we think even today. There are maybe some obvious ways. We have this uh, phrase called the occult, which is the very obvious ways in which human beings try to engage with demons. Kind of the, the, the idea of what the occult is, is trying to deal with the world of spirits or supernatural forces which are not oriented on Jesus as he's revealed in the Bible. It's essentially this, to try to engage the supernatural apart from Christ. That's what the occult is. And those engaging in this are, are usually kind of looking for information, secret information, hidden information, validation, power of some sorts. And there's all kinds of overt examples. Fortune telling, casting spells, real magic, not just like sleight of hand stuff, but real magic, witchcraft, energy healing, charms, Ouija boards, astrology, praying and talking to the dead. All kinds of these things are clear as day prohibited for followers of Jesus. That is literally trying to engage with the supernatural completely apart from Christ, looking for something, some kind of information or power or validation or purpose in the spiritual world. And, and what the Bible is telling us is when you do that, 
You're literally inviting open arms to, to demonic spirits to say, come and influence me. Come and give me your power and your knowledge. But it doesn't just have to be the blatant things. It can also be really popular and mainstream things that maybe we never even thought twice about. Like zodiac signs and your horoscopes. Literally in that, what human beings are doing is looking to the stars and the moon and the planets for information about my life. Know me. Tell me what I'm like. Tell me what my month is going to look like. Literally looking to something else for their purpose and their identity. Know me. Determine the course of my life. Or things like yoga, which is an ancient Hindu spiritual practice. That's not just exercise. Breath work. This idea of like completely absent your mind from all thoughts and just open yourself up and breathe. To put that in spiritual terms, hey, take down every guard you have. Take off the armor of God and just open yourself up to whatever may come. Crystals, putting certain things in my home that have spiritual powers to protect me from evil. Even cultural things we engage in like music. There's musical artists out there that are literally blatantly holding before us different ancient gods. There's different musical artists that are literally dressing up as ancient gods in music videos and in performances to embody them. Get wrapped up in this. I heard one person in particular talking about a very popular artist to say this, her music made witchcraft beautiful. I loved the music so much that I thought the witchcraft was beautiful. Movies. There's a weird phenomenon in our culture for paranormal activity and watching demonic movies to literally be entertained by the power and working of demons. That we would go to these things and say, entertain me. Allow me to experience the euphoria of being scared by you, of watching others be scared by you, and let me laugh and find enjoyment in all of your workings and dealings. The first century Christians experienced a lot of this as well. It's interesting when you read about first century Christians and their approach to the theater. Something to us that sounds quite innocent. Go to the theater, that sounds lovely, right? Get a bag of popcorn, maybe a nice cold Coca-Cola, and enjoy the theater together. Christians in the first couple of centuries would not be caught dead in a theater. But the theater's amazing. You go to these ancient cities, the theater is the crown of the city. It's beautiful. But Christians would not go. Tertullian, who was an ancient theologian, said this for the reasons why. Here's why Christians would not go to the theater. Because of their baptismal vows, denouncing the devil and all of his works. Because the actor's indecent gestures and costumes because of the lust for pleasure and impurity that the dramas impart to the audience, because the plays excite strong emotion for an object other than God, because of the theater's origin in idolatry. Rejection of such amusements was the main sign to neighbors that you had accepted Jesus. There was an understanding 
among early Christians to say, this might be widely accepted in our culture. It might just seem like fun and enjoyment and recreational activity, but there's something spiritual happening here that we are not to be a part of. There is an engaging with idolatry and sin and even demonic spirits that are going on here, and so we're saying no. Even if that makes us unpopular, even if that makes us uncultured, because we belong to Jesus. It even has an impact on how we're supposed to view other religions. That when people are worshiping other gods, non-biblical versions of Jesus, that they aren't just worshiping nothing, they're worshiping demons. In fact, what's interesting, you look at two, one of the world's major religions, Islam, and then uh, Mormonism, both of those started based off of supernatural angelic revelation. It very well may have. We, the scriptures tell us that Satan himself masquerades as an angel of light. The scriptures have told us clearly, if anyone comes to you and preaches a different gospel, even if an angel, let him be accursed. There's no other gospel but the good news of who Jesus is revealed in the scriptures. And even our idols, our idols that look real plain to us, he's saying, are engaging and inviting demonic spirits. So our greed, our craving for just more, I need more property, I need more money, I need more influence, I need more power, I need more success in my life, that we aren't just innocently wanting more, that we're actually worshiping someone other than Jesus. We're worshiping demons? That our, our, our engagement with pornography is not just nothing, that it's actually inviting the influence of the demonic spirits? It strikes us as insane. It strikes us as hyper-spiritual and crazy and way out there and not actually real. But this, these are not my words just trying to convince you. The Apostle Paul in the Word of God, the inspired God-breathed scriptures is telling us, even when you engage in things that don't seem to be spiritual at all, if you're worshiping something other than Jesus, it's not just innocent, you're actually fellowshipping with demons. You're sitting at their table. When I worship my career, when I find all of my identity and how much money that I have, when I'm so consumed and concerned with my body and how I can present it, when I worship my freedom to self-express and don't you dare hinder that from me, that we're actually fellowshipping with demons. We're inviting them to take up residence in our lives, sometimes overtly, sometimes unaware. In Ephesians chapter 4, when it's talking about anger, listen to what it says. Be angry and do not sin. Do not let the sun go down on your anger and give no opportunity to the devil. The word, that word, no opportunity in the original languages is this idea of a place, a location. Do not give the devil a location. Don't give him property. Don't put up a for rent sign and say, you can come squat here. You can come rent this out and put down a security deposit and kind of just have your little space here. And he's saying when we allow our anger to go unchecked, that's what we're doing. 
We might say it's just music, it's just a movie, I'm fine, I have the Holy Spirit, but that doesn't mean you're immune. Yes, you are victorious. Amen. He cannot snatch you out of Jesus' hand. But it doesn't mean you can't be negatively affected. So the question is, well, how, how do we actually fight that? How do we actually not fellowship with demons? I think very practically this morning, some of us, all of us, need to just open our hands to the Holy Spirit and say, is there anything in my life that I've been blind to that just needs to get out of my life? Holy Spirit, is there anything involved in my life that just has evil origins that, I, that you want out of my life? Holy Spirit, is there anything I'm engaged in in my life right now that's actually fellowshipping with demons? As dramatic as I might think that is, is there any of that happening in my life that you want to get rid of? And open our hands to him and let him speak. Don't just speak for him. Let him speak. Let him reveal things to you that maybe you think are crazy and that you would weigh them and consider them according to his scripture. We also need to be on guard against the schemes of the demonic. We need to know that, he says here, you cannot drink the cup of demons. You cannot sit at the table of demons because there's a table. And when you come to the table of demons, there's a cup and there's bread. There's a sacrifice required, except it's your body and your blood. It says, I'll give you what you want, but you need to sacrifice your body and your blood. Give me this and I'll give you what you've always wanted. But when we come to the table of Jesus, the sacrifice has already been provided. It was his body and his blood. So while demons may invite us to their table and say, I'll give you everything you've ever wanted, but you need to try harder. You need to bleed more. You need to suffer more. You need to do, do, do. The Lord Jesus invites us to his table and says, I've done everything. You can rest. It's finished. No more work needed. My body was broken. My blood was poured out. We need to also use wisdom. Things come at us so fast right now. Right? All, all of us could pull out our phone right now and scroll for 30 seconds and be confronted with things we weren't looking for, we didn't ask for. And all of a sudden, they're in front of us. We're partaking of it. Things come at us so fast that comes with, sure, a lot, a lot of fun and a lot of blessings sometimes, but there is constantly things coming at us. And how often do we actually pause to say, before I engage in this, before I partake of this, before I commit to this and enjoy this and spread it and share it, before I do that, how often do we stop and say, does this align with Jesus? Or do we just think, seems cool. Everybody else is liking it, sweet. How often do we stop and say, does this align with Jesus? And can we recognize that things that might look good to us might not actually align with Jesus? You know, when Adam and Eve were in the garden, after the Lord told them not to eat of the fruit of the tree, and yet it tells us that Eve saw the fruit and that it looked pleasing to her eyes. And it looked as if it would make her wise. So what's going on inside Eve as she looks at this fruit? She says, it looks good. It seems like it will benefit me. But what did she forget? She forgot what the Lord said. She forgot his words. If she had remembered his words, she would have remembered, even though it seems good to me, I can trust his word above me. 
And we need to do that with the things that we partake of. Our idols and our entertainment might look nice, but do they align with Jesus? The goal here is not, hey, be afraid, because this is really dangerous. The goal here is, hey, be wise. Be wise in where you go and what you partake in, recognizing there are spiritual elements at play that you might not be aware of. But our real power against demonic influence is repentance. It's repentance. The very thing that allowed us to come to the table, repentance. There is power in repenting because there's power in the body and blood of Christ to tell the enemy to leave. So if you find yourself this morning, maybe burdened, feeling like, oh, man, I, I think I might be caught up in some stuff. I think I might have been engaging in some of the stuff unaware. Guess what? There is power and hope and freedom for you in repentance and coming to the gracious Lord Jesus and saying, Jesus, I am so sorry I've engaged in these things. I turn from them. I lay them at your feet. Would you forgive me? And 1 John 1 tells us this, that when we confess our sins, he is faithful and just to forgive us and cleanse us of all unrighteousness. He cleans the house. Paul finishes this section, verse 22. He finishes this section not with warning us of demonic power to say, hey guys, this is powerful stuff. No, he warns us with the jealousy of God. He says, what are you doing, Christian? Provoking God to jealousy. Like you have a big stick and you're just like, bothered yet? I'm worshiping demons over here. Does that bother you? Does it make you? What are we doing? Idolatry provokes the Lord to, to jealousy. You know, the beautiful thing about who God is, God does not need to be provoked to love us. It flows out of him abundantly and naturally. In order for God to be angry, he has to be provoked. It says something about his heart for us. But it's actually good news that we have a God who's jealous because he's not, he's not jealous for things that don't belong to him. He's jealous for the things that are his, which is actually really good news for us because it means when we go astray, he comes and gets us. It means when we sin and we run away from him, he says, I won't let you go too far. I'm coming after you. I love you so much. You belong to me that I'll never let you go. It's good news that we have a God like that. Amen? I got the opportunity a while ago to um, have a really amazing flight experience. I was gifted uh, United Business Class tickets, which is like basically, I, I think it's like first class, I don't know the terms, but I got to experience this for the first time as a gift from somebody. I was like, th I didn't know what I was in for. It was incredible. I, I mean, I think it's better than like just being at home. Like, you, I, I mean, at the airport, you get these like lay flat seats I know I have a lay flat bed at home, but like you get these lay flat seats with a TV right there. You get a blanket, nice headphones. The people are coming around calling me Mr. Ranieri. What can I get for you? I'm like, oh, well, what do you got? Like, the, the treatment was amazing. You get, I got access to like this lounge where there were showers. Guys, this is like, like I mean, this just, I mean, it blew me away. This airport experience was like enjoyable. I got to take a shower in between legs of a flight. It was, it was amazing. It was so fun. It was such a gift but it's also now ruined me. Because I got to experience this. I got to experience this business class and it was awesome, but now when I go back to sit in the middle seat in the back of the plane, nobody knows my name, nobody cares who I am. I don't even get my own armrest. I'm like, oh, but 
I want to be up there. It's so much better up there. Friends, as followers of Jesus, we've tasted what it's like to sit at the table of Jesus, right? What are we doing? Trying to go sit at another table. We've got it. We've got access to it. It's ours. Lifetime guaranteed. This is our table. We belong here to Jesus. So let's sit exclusively here. Amen? Let's pray together.